In this lecture, we'll treat Immanuel Kant, the last of the modern philosophers, and arguably the greatest. Pope John Paul II, one of my favorite philosophers, was once asked about Immanuel Kant, and he raised his hands and said, Oh my God, Kant. That is how people sometimes feel when they read Kant. He's an acquired taste. He's difficult. But I want to give you some appreciation of Kant, even if I can't explain that whole philosophy. Kant could be understood as something like the Thomas Aquinas of modern philosophy. Just as Aquinas was the grand synthesizer of the great tradition behind him. Aristotle, Plato, Augustine, Anselm. Aquinas is trying to, the Bible. Thomas Aquinas is trying to give us a complete picture of that. So Kant starts with Bacon and seeks to give us a grand synthesis, which includes both empiricism and rationalism, and puts them into a kind of coherent whole. As I mentioned, the epigraph to Kant's great critique of pure reason is from Bacon's great instauration, which we discussed in an earlier lecture. Although Kant wrote many things during his lifetime, he was born in 1724 and died in 1804, most of his writings occurred in the 1780s and 1790s. And perhaps the greatest of his achievements was a three-part work called The Critique of Pure Reason, The Critique of Practical Reason, and The Critique of Judgment. Just to give you some idea of those books, here they are, three volumes, somewhat reminiscent of the three parts of Aquinas' Summa Theologiae. Here we have The Critique of Pure Reason, Truth. Here we have The Critique of Practical Reason, Goodness. And here we have the critique of judgment, beauty. Kant was very interested in truth, goodness, and beauty. And his thoughts on them exert an enormous influence on 19th and 20th century philosophy, even into our own day. And while I would love in this lecture to go into all of those details, I'm largely going to limit my comments to Kant's thoughts about ethics or morality. But before I do that, I think it's important to understand something of his background, his understanding of truth, that first critique of pure reason, or as I've said earlier, Kant's epistemology. Remember, epistemology is a philosophy of our knowing powers. And Kant fits very firmly into that modern critical project. First, we have to assess what the powers of mind can know and not know, and only then can we begin to talk about other things. So Kant, as I said, tries to give us that grand synthesis. He tries to synthesize rationalism and empiricism, and he also tries to make a space in this synthesis for things that to us might seem in deep tension. Those are science, morality, and God. One could argue that it's the failure of Kant's synthesis that leads 
to Friedrich Nietzsche, whom we will treat in our next lecture. So let's begin with Kant's first critique, his epistemology. Now, that is a large and complicated subject. It is worth a lifetime of study. But I'm going to try and reduce it to its most basic principles so that you can understand the general idea of what Kant is doing. Kant tells us very explicitly in a famous passage that it was David Hume that awoke him from his dogmatic slumbers. Kant, prior to reading Hume, had had this confidence that a systematic view of metaphysics and reality and even of morality could work. But Hume caused Kant to realize that there were reasons to doubt our account of nature and reality. And he partly wrote the critiques as a response to Hume's arguments. The problem presented by Hume is this. Hume undermines our belief in both science, a scientific causal account of reality, and Hume undermines our belief that we can know morality. Kant, agreeing with Hume that all knowledge begins with the senses, wants to give us an account of reality in which we can believe in science and we can believe in real morality. And I think we probably think that's a good thing. What we have to understand is that there's a deep tension between at least modern science and morality. What is that tension? Recall that in the Baconian picture of nature that then is followed by Descartes and other modern scientists, nature is understood as matter in motion that can be described by mathematics. That is, it's a mechanistic view of nature. And that view of nature is surprisingly successful. Our ability to describe nature and manipulate nature and make predictions from nature using mathematics is one of the greatest achievements of the modern world. But if nature is understood in this mechanistic way, if it is causally determined, then there's a big problem. Where is there room for freedom? How is a free action possible? We have to keep in mind that, at least in our bodies, we too are in that world of mechanism and matter in motion. We are not privileged to be free from that world. Try jumping out a window and see what happens. The laws of gravity will pull you down. So we too are subject to those laws, and that might mean that we don't have freedom. And if we don't have freedom, we can't actually make moral choices. Because how do you hold someone responsible for a moral action if they had no capacity to act otherwise? 
Kant's great achievement, if he succeeds, is to give us an account of, of reality which preserves a scientific view and also accounts of morality that preserves freedom. And you might be wondering right now, how does he do it? How can you do it? And in the end, you might not be satisfied with the answer he gives. But here is the answer. We can understand it according to two basic principles. Number one, Kant initiates what he calls a Copernican turn in epistemology. That's his analogy. Remember, Copernicus speculated that perhaps the strange movements of the planets, the retrograde motions in their appearances, were caused by us moving, not the planets. Our, under, our perception of the reality was not the reality, it was in us. And that helped to explain a lot. Well, Kant says, what if we think about all of our perceptions of reality that way? What if all our perceptions of reality are not perceptions of the way reality is, but are structured by us in our own minds? Let me give you what is somewhat a somewhat crude and misleading example, but I think it's helpful to get an idea of what Kant is arguing. Imagine if you were born with red-tinted glasses permanently affixed to your eyes. Everything you saw would be tinted red. You would perceive everything with that red tint, and you could not remove those glasses to get past them to see what reality looks like in itself. That's how Kant thinks about our condition. Everything we see in reality is in time. It has spatial configuration. We bring concepts of substance and causality. We think those things are in reality, but Kant thinks that we necessarily must see reality through those glasses to see it that way. We might call these the science glasses. Kant thinks every perceiver of the world has to wear science glasses. He further thinks that the spatial configurations that the science glasses give us correspond to mathematics. That's why reality has to look causally determined. That is why we can describe reality according to mathematics. Importantly, it is through the glasses that we are seeing reality. Kant uses a technical term for this. He says, we have access to the phenomena, that is, the appearance of things. But on the other side of the phenomena, on the other side of the glasses, is what Kant calls the noumena, the way things are in themselves. And Kant simply insists we don't know what things are like in themselves. We only know the way they appear to us. I hope you see where this is going. If the science classes show how reality appears, they can justify very much our scientific and mathematical accounts of reality. But because those accounts only describe the way reality appears, 
it may be that reality in itself leaves room for something different. Now, add a second analogy to this Copernican turn. The second analogy is this. Kant thinks we actually have a second pair of glasses. I'm going to call these the morality glasses. And let's shake up the initial image and say that I can actually shift my science glasses to my morality glasses. And those are the only two pairs of glasses we own, our science glasses or our morality glasses. Through the morality glasses, we can actually believe that the world is, in fact, free. That we can actually make choices and influence events in the world. Now, Kant makes clear that through the morality glasses, we can't actually see freedom. We can't actually see free activity, but we can at least believe that it's there and act according to what we're seeing through those morality glasses. And so, here's the second part of understanding Kant's epistemology. The first, as I said, is the Copernican turn. The Copernican turn, once more, is this, stated briefly. Our minds do not conform to reality. Reality conforms to our minds. And I want to highlight once again that this is a dramatic revision of pre-modern philosophy. For the pre-modern thinkers, truth is a conformity of mind to reality. For Kant, in his epistemology, reality conforms to the mind. The second point is that the way Kant understands that Copernican turn means that reality becomes bifurcated. We have our science glasses and we have our morality glasses. We somehow simultaneously can exist in both worlds because the science glasses give us phenomena, the way things appear. We can still put on those morality glasses and trust or hope or believe that the noumenal world, the world as it is, supports our freedom somehow. Now, you may not like this division. It may not seem tenable to you. It didn't seem tenable to a lot of people. But to many people, it did seem like the only way we could really reconcile the things we want out of modern science, our beliefs about scientific reality, and our beliefs in morality. This now uh, leads us to our treatment then of Kant's understanding of morality, which I want to make the main focus of my remaining remarks. Remember, the science classes tell us about the world as it appears. In that world, everything looks determined by necessity. It's a world we know through experience, and it's a world of things governed by laws of nature. Flip over to my morality glasses, and we see the world as it might be. It's a world in which freedom can actually determine human action, not causal necessity. It's a world that we see prior to experience. It's something we bring to the world, the way the world might be by the choices we make. And it's a world in which persons, not things, 
are governed by moral laws. So how does Kant think about morality? You could read Kant's Critique of Practical Reason to get his more comprehensive view of morality. Fortunately, Kant condensed his understanding of morality into this slim little volume, Grounding for the Metaphysics of Morals. I want to say a few things about Kant's treatment of morality and the grounding for the metaphysics of morals. First of all, what Kant tells us is that morality has nothing to do with emotions or inclinations. Why not? Because our emotions and inclinations are in the world of experience, and the world of experience is a world of matter in motion determined by necessity. Similarly, Kant thinks that morality has nothing to do with happiness. Why not? Once again, happiness is rooted in a desire that we have. And as soon as we talk about a desire for some set of goods, some state of being, we're back in the world of appearance, of phenomena, of necessity. That means also that morality has nothing to do with goods or the good. Why? Because goods and the good attract our will. We're back in the world of appearances and of that deterministic matter in motion. Finally, morality has nothing to do with consequences, good or bad. We don't think about consequences when we think about morality. Why not? Because the world of appearances is a world in which there are cause and effect consequences. We can't derive our moral judgments from what we see in the appearances of the world. So you might be wondering right now if morality has nothing to do with emotion, with passion, with inclination, with perceptions of happiness, or the good, or consequences, what in the world can morality be about? That is the genius of Kant's understanding of morality. Kant says, if, if morality exists, if we're to get out of the world of the science glasses, it must be a morality based on duty for its own sake. Duty alone has to be the justification for morality, not consequences, not inclinations, not the good, not happiness, but duty for its own sake. I remind you that Kant is German, and so am I. There's something, perhaps, in our blood that is inclined to see things in terms of duties. But Kant gives good reasons for this view. He tells us, duty is the necessity of an action done out of respect for the law. I can indeed have an inclination for an object as the effect of my proposed action, but I can never have respect for such an object just because it is merely an effect and is not an activity of the will. What is he saying here? Think about it. If I say, I really want to go get a beer right now, how many of you think, good for you, that was a good action? We ought to print that in the paper. Dr. Schleter went and got a beer. We don't think that's a bad thing, 
but we don't praise it. When people go and get the things they want, a cup of coffee, ice cream, spending time with a friend, we don't regard those as respectful activities, praiseworthy activities, activities we esteem. That's why Kant says those are not moral activities. They're not wrong, but they're not moral. But what happens when someone sacrifices something that they want for the sake of duty? How about when someone gives up their life, risking themselves to save someone? Then we say that action merits esteem. That is a moral action. So Kant wants to understand duty most clearly when it's against an inclination. And again, I think we somewhat spontaneously recognize why that is so. Our natural moral judgments seem to correspond to what Kant is telling us. So Kant wants to tell us that the way we get out of nature and that laws of nature that we see through science classes is to do things for the sake of duty. And he always he already told us in the reading, duty for the sake of what? Kant says, duty for the sake of a moral law in itself. Now comes the question, where do we get that moral law? How do we find it? Because it can't be a good or happiness or a law of nature. How do we know what our duties are? Kant gives us a way to decide this. He calls it the categorical imperative. Categorical meaning there are no exceptions to it. An imperative meaning it makes a command on us. The easiest way to see this is through an example he gives. He uses the example of someone who is in a difficult situation. They're in need. They need money, for example. And the only way they can get the money is to promise to pay it back. But they know that they can't ever pay back the money. The question is, can you make a false promise when you need to? Let's assume for the sake of the argument that the need is a very good one. Let's say it's a need to pay the mortgage on your house to support your family. Otherwise, they'll be evicted and you and your family will be out on the street. Can you lie to get the loan to promote that good end? Here's how Kant answers the question. He says, universalize that into what would be a law of nature and see if you can accept it. This is what we might call the first formulation of the categorical imperative. Kant will give us two others and I will mention them to you as we go through. Here is how he expresses it. This is the first formulation. It's sometimes called the formulation of the law of nature. Since I have deprived the will of every impulse that might arise from it, from obeying any particular law, there is nothing left to serve the will as principle except the universal conformity of its actions to law as such. For example, 
I should never act except in such a way that I can also will that my maxim should become a universal law. Let's walk through this. In the particular instance that Kant gives, I'm faced with the question, may I make a false promise under need? Convert that to a maxim, a rule. What's the rule under which I am proposing to do this particular action? The maxim would be something like this. When someone is in need, he may make a false promise. That's the universal maxim that I am proposing to follow in this particular act. Finally, Kant says, pretend that that maxim was a law of nature so that everyone who is in need would have the right to make a false promise. Make it a law of nature in your imagination. Could you will a world in which everyone could make a false promise when they were in need? Kant says, clearly not. Why? Because if everyone could make false promises in need, then all trust would break down and society and social cooperation would be impossible. We could never will as a law of nature a world in which people did not keep their promises. And that means that when I propose to myself to make a false promise, I'm actually making an exception for myself from what I would will as a universal law of nature. That's the first categorical imperative, or the first formulation of the categorical imperative. Kant gives us a second formulation, which is different and also very interesting. He asks, is there anything in our world that could serve as some kind of limit to our inclination and our will? In the world of appearances, with my science glasses on, all I see are things, objects, matter in motion. Scientists see things. But Kant asks, is there anything that we could possibly see that would not be a thing? And he suggests there is one such thing. It's persons. A person, for Kant, is a kind of being which is an end in itself and not a thing. Now, Kant insists that we have no actual experience of persons, because all experience comes through our science classes, but he thinks we have an idea of persons in our reason. And if persons exist, they would be the kind of thing that it would be wrong to treat like things. Here's how he puts it. But let us suppose that there were something whose existence has in itself an absolute worth, something which is an end in itself, could be a ground of determinate laws. In it and in it alone would there be a ground of a possible categorical imperative, that is, of a practical law. Now, I say that man and in general every rational being exists 
as an end in himself and not merely as a means to be arbitrarily used by this or that will. And so Kant gives us a second formulation of the categorical imperative. He calls it, we could call it, the formulation of the person as an end in himself. He writes, The practical imperative will therefore be the following. Act in such a way that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of another, always at the same time as an end and never simply as a means. You may have heard that language before. And again, it seems to follow our common sense understanding of morality. After all, we sometimes say in our own language, I feel used. He used her. What do we mean by that? We mean, I was treated like a thing and not like a person. I was merely made an instrument of someone else's will. And that's what Kant means when he talks about the second formulation of the categorical imperative. We should never treat persons merely as things. We should always also treat them as ends in themselves. There's a third formulation of the categorical imperative. Kant, by the way, thinks all three of these formulations amount to the same thing. This is what Kant calls the formulation of autonomy. That's a word you may be familiar with, and it's a word Kant introduces into our language. Recall that with the science glasses on, everything looks causally determined. And everything, if everything is causally determined, nothing can be free. So Kant thinks that we must somehow give the moral law to ourselves in order to be free. Kant thinks we must be self-legislators. We, we can't derive that law from anywhere else. We have to give it to ourselves in our practical reason. This is why Kant says that moral action must be autonomous. It must be free. The word autonomy is rooted in a contraction of autonomos, self-law. We have to give ourselves our own law. Now, Kant's understanding of this is very demanding and exacting, as you might have noticed. If I'm going to be moral, all of my actions must be such that the maxim that, that determines my action, I could will as a universal law, independent of all consequences independent of all inclinations, independent of my own good, independent of all of my concern for happiness. That's very demanding. Today, when we think about autonomy, we tend to think of it as my right to do whatever I want so long as it does not harm anyone else. We take it to mean my right to create myself, to determine my own ends. But that is very different than what Kant meant by autonomy. Let me give you one consequence of Kant's understanding of morality to let you see what the stakes are. I mentioned making false promises as an example. What about telling falsehoods 
more generally. What if you are a person who is hiding Jews in Nazi Germany? And a Nazi guard knocks on your door and asks you, are you hiding Jews? How might you respond? Kant would say, you may not tell a lie to the Nazi guard. You might tell a lie because you think the consequences are good. If you tell the truth, then the Nazi guard will seize those Jews and send them to a concentration camp and possibly to their death. But Kant says morality has nothing to do with calculating good or bad consequences. Morality is following a universal duty. Now, you could be silent. Kant doesn't say you necessarily have to tell the truth. He just says you cannot tell a falsehood to the Nazi guard. What do you think? If you think that you can tell a falsehood to a Nazi guard, does that mean that you think it's okay to lie? Or perhaps you think that not all falsehoods are lies. These are great questions, and they're for another course in ethics that we can do down the road. For now, I want to leave you with two final thoughts about the legacy of Kant. There are two streams of influence that follow from Kant's influence, and there are two streams that we are not going to spend a lot of time with in this lecture series. One stream follows from Kant's argument for how we bring this bifurcated world together. How do we have a world in which we simultaneously can have our morality glasses and our science glasses on? And the answer Kant gives is that history might provide an opportunity in which those two glasses somehow come together. That is, Kant suggests that perhaps history is progressive. He suggests that perhaps there's a meaning to history, that history might be a successive series of events in which the morality glasses become more and more a part of the science glasses. He gives us a progressive view of history. Secondly, thinkers after Kant challenge his view that there are things in themselves outside the science glasses. Why not just say that the science glasses are all of reality? That the science and morality glasses constitute the way things really are? In that case, all of the world would be constituted by our own perception of reality. The end of this path is German idealism, a very powerful movement in the 19th century. German idealism fuses together that progressive history with an idea of reason, and it reaches its culmination in George Friedrich Hegel, who writes of another monumental systematic account of philosophy in which history is reason unfolded itself into a complete coherence. One person who studies Hegel and disagrees with him is a Jewish scholar named Karl Marx. And we see Karl Marx's influence 
in the 20th century. In the next lecture, we will treat Friedrich Nietzsche, who doesn't believe any of this, and he takes us in a different direction.